Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can luxury fashion really go green? Even as we sit at home in our third best jeans or sweatpants, dedicated trendsetters look forward to a new season and a new set of en vogue apparel and accessories with it. But as the environmental impact of the industry comes under scrutiny, designers are sketching out how to make their wares last a lifetime. My guest is a handbag and accessories guru, helping us figure out how to be sustainable and stylish. Anya Heinmarch was just a British teenager when, inspired by a woman who made handbagging famous, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, she founded her eponymous label. Since then, she's built her business into a luxury global brand. Her creations range from bags inspired by chocolate bars and cereal packets to deftly crafted basket weave, sporting jaunty bows. They're often seen as arm candy for red carpet stars and royalty. But she also went to war on waste. In 2007, her I am not a plastic bag cotton tote was a sellout worldwide. Her latest it bag is a chic shopper made entirely from recycled bottles. Now she's looking at how to make leather biodegradable. Is it substance or just style? Anya Heinmarch, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much for having me. So I have to ask in this holiday season when some of us are hoping for handbags under the Christmas tree from our other halves and that the rest are wondering what on earth all the fuss is about, when was the first time that you fell in love with the handbag? <laughs> Probably actually when I was about 16, when my mother gave me one of her old handbags. And I remember how it fascinated me, actually, not only the craftsmanship and the leather and the materials and so on, but actually the mood altering aspects of a beautiful thing. And that's what's always fascinated me. Is it the structure? Is it the look? Is it, and I'm sure you're going to tell us as we go along that it's all that and more, but I'm just conscious of the fact that the first handbag, I think that's still in existence uh, that we can see was found in Northern Iraq and dates back to about the, the 1400s. Is there something of the legacy and the history that also gets your blood pumping? Ultimately, it, it's a practical response to a need, isn't it? I think that things that work have a real beauty to them, actually, and have a real luxury. So when you leave to go to the office, you need to take certain things, you want to be organised, you want to be able to be efficient. And I, I find that quite fascinating as well, actually, um, and how people have managed that over history and the different things they carry and needed to carry is quite interesting. I and mean, I always think the contents of some Roman handbag is utterly fascinating, for example. So the contents of a handbag tells a lot. To give people who may not know what you do an, an idea of what an Anya Heinmarch bag could look like, you have 
collaborated with charities. You've allowed customers to print their own photographs onto bags. You pioneered the idea of people being able to come with a sort of bespoke requirement. You know, am I someone who tends to lose my keys? Where should they they go in the bag to stop that happening or stop them scratching my, my phone? It seems that being bespoke or thinking through things from a more individual basis is often the way that you start. I start really with what I need, actually. That's my starting point. So ultimately, I I start as a fashion designer. I love fashion. I love the way that fashion can make you feel great and make you the best version of yourself. So I suppose people know us as a fashion um, design brand of accessories. That's probably how we're known. And through that, we have uh, lots of beautiful handbags, some of which just exist simply because they're lovely things. And more and more, as we understand about the climate challenges, we've tried to really incorporate um, a more sustainable way of working, more responsible way of working into what we do. So I think probably in the many, many years of my career, (laughs) it's morphed, if you like, from being pure fashion through to, I hope, fashion with purpose, actually. But still, for me, purpose is about making people feel good. One of the biggest talking points in the industry is sustainability, because the consumption cycle of fashion is at odds with that ideal. It is stitched into your brand. In 2007, you launched the I'm Not a Plastic Bag Cotton Tote. This year, you've collaborated with British supermarkets, with Sainsbury's and Waitrose on the Universal Bag. And you've created a bag made from recycled plastic bottles. Tell us a bit more about those designs and what they're a response to. The amount of fashion and stuff, frankly, going into landfill is is out of control. And of course, it damages the, the soil, which of course, in turn, is a huge sequester of carbon. So it's not a, a healthy um, cycle that we've been living in for these, these last um, few decades. And so we started a project back in 2007 called I Am Not a Plastic Bag. And very simply, it was a project to raise awareness of the misuse of single-use plastic. And It was a five pound tote bag that we sold through the supermarkets and in particular through Sainsbury's and it rolled through the world because we wanted to actually go to, if you like, the coalface of the the issue. Well, awareness it got, I think it's fair to say. We had, um, I think, 80,000 people queued in the UK in a day for that bag. And I think the British Retail Consortium quotes that something like 10.6 billion single use plastic bags were used prior to the project and it went down to about six billion. So it, it did make a difference. And I'm super proud of that project. However, Many years later in 2020, that glorious year that we've all just recently shared, um, the the problem was far from over. And we wanted to revisit the subject, but this time not around awareness, clearly, but around the, the circularity of materials and how we could encourage people to, through this bag called I Am A Plastic Bag, to think about actually repurposing, I think it's like the 8 billion tonnes of plastic that's currently on the planet, and how we could repurpose this plastic, which was destined for landfill, and make it into something beautiful and keep it in circulation. So how did you create the materials? It was a fabric that we we designed made out of um, recycled plastic bottles, PET bottles. And we wanted to create a fabric that behaved like a beautiful cotton drill canvas so that it felt qualitative for our luxury customer. In fact, it behaved so much like a cotton canvas that we had to find a way to coat it, to protect it, because it was getting dirty like normal cotton would. We managed to extract the plastic that is actually normally between the glass and windscreens, which would have been destined for landfill, and to repurpose it, to use it as a coating on one side of this this new fabric. So we created this bag called I Am A Plastic Bag. More recently, very recently, we have launched a bag called the Universal Bag. 
I think the most exciting thing about this project was three things that are exciting. The first is that we're collaborating with any supermarket who wants to be involved in the project. So it launches, has launched in Sainsbury's, it's about to launch in Waitrose at the beginning of the new year, and we're launching around the world and talking to different partners. So the idea of eco, not ego, of actually collaboration being the answer is really interesting. And, and the point of this bag is, again, it's made from recycled PET and plastic. The easiest way to describe it is it's sort of the next generation um, bag for life, because the issue with bags for life is that people take statistically one a week. Just interject a question there, if I could. You know, we, a lot of people listening to this aren't in Britain, and you talked about making partnerships outside the UK. You know, the brands that you're working with are absolutely huge in Britain. They're the Sainsbury's, Waitrose, they're two of the big uh, high street supermarkets. But where would you like to take this project? And your powerful brand, you're powered by you, by Anya Heinmarsh. Do you think you will be able to make this more than something that just happens because British supermarkets are happy to buy into it as a social responsibility mission? Well, yes. When I've been on the phone this morning to potential partners in Japan, China, Hong Kong, and then we're talking also sometimes to people in, in all over the world. So I think it's... Um, very realistic that um, we will have a global presence for this product. Uh, And the idea really very simply is that it offers an alternative that encourages people to have a reuse um, mentality, Um, because this is designed, hopefully, to make people want to use it, but also has this quite innovative pouch where you fold the bag into the pocket and you can recycle it by simply putting it into the post box. And then we guarantee that it will um, be recycled 100%. It's also guaranteed to last 10 years. So this is an alternative that is keeping plastic that would have been destined for landfill out of landfill. Young millennials and Gen Zers increasingly rent and resell clothes and bags. That's having an impact on the industry. In October, Rent the Runway, which is a rental platform that you will know well, floated on the New York Stock Exchange. The luxury brands from Burberry to Balenciaga, Gucci have partnered with resale rental platforms, something that might have surprised me a few years ago because I thought that they may want to keep special and keep separate. But has the rise of the rental market affected businesses like yours? Well, I think it's a fantastic thing. Uh, And I think actually handbags are a great sort of candidate for rental, probably easier in terms of no sizing and and less dry cleaning and so on. And and of course, the the whole industry is struggling with the best way um, forward, because actually sometimes if you look at the stats, apparently, and I'm no expert in this area, but sometimes the movement of clothes and the endless cleaning and so on can actually end up being a bit counterproductive. But I really believe it's, it's a good solution. I think sharing full stop, we all have way too many things and sitting sort of dead in our wardrobes, it makes absolute sense. And there's often peer to peer rental, which is becoming a big trend as well, that, you know, if someone in your area is your same size, why not share each other's wardrobe? So there's lots of different ways. So all these things, I think, as I say, are slightly iterative. You know, you, you sort of start with one thing and you realise actually what works better is is the other. But we just have to get going. But it is it is a different prospect for me anyway, to the idea of owning this sort of thing that you're going to treasure, a little bit perhaps in tension with the idea of buying less and treasuring it more is, well, I'm buying it, but I might rent it out. I'm I find that kind of difficult. Well, I think it's a whole sea change for, for, for us, if you like. But, you know, we have to have some sea changes going forward here. This is this is a very serious threat that we're facing. And I think it's exciting, frankly. So I think it will end up with us looking as though we have a few things that we buy, that we save up for, that we treasure, we use forever, we repair uh, and we lend and we share. Some things that we don't buy because we don't need that often. It might be an occasion piece that you want every so often and that that you buy, you share, you rent. I think it's going to be a hybrid model. And I think there need to be some very significant changes to the way that we've all behaved that, you know, the sort of, if you like, the muscle memory has got a shift here. 
What's lovely is we're being led, are we not, by the younger generation who I remember talking about the sharing economy and I remember thinking, I'm not sure I want to share anything at all. But actually, I do. And it's exciting. And we need to. So I think um, the idea of luxury, for me, it's really hard to think of that word luxury without it being responsible. How can we talk about something being luxurious if it's harming the soil, the environment? It's so significant, this, this issue that we're facing. I mean, I'm properly scared and I'm really scared. This is going to affect our kids. This is now. If someone were to say to you, brands like your own have had lots of years of being able to grow and being able to make good margins and to contribute to retail at a high level in the UK and, and beyond, and now the penny has kind of dropped to about the, the climate, do you feel that the industry as a whole has something to feel sorry for? We have to change. That's the imperative. We have to change the way so that we don't pollute and damage our planet. That's a given, even if it means we all have to take lesser profit margins. I just think that is a responsibility that we can't just carry on. But actually, it's an important adjustment, actually, that I think protects our profit margins, because I think any sensible customer demands that of us. I demanded of myself as a customer and as a business owner. For example, we don't partake in Black Friday. And I was nervous because, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy for business, but it's crazy for the planet. And we went out on a limb and really said, we're not doing this. And we gave all our profits to charity that weekend instead of partaking in Black Friday. And we had one of my most successful, not obviously in terms of profits, we gave profit away, but successful sales periods ever. So people do care. So I think actually it's not it's not a negative to success of business to change to a more sustainable and responsible way of working. I think it's an imperative. I guess the biggest challenge for you and for retailers worldwide is COVID and the fact that this has dragged on rather, rather outstayed. It's rather limited welcome, hasn't it? It's changed retail patterns. How do we get people back uh, into shops, given the on-off nature of regulations? Um, wherever you are and wherever you're listening to this, they'll be different. And the pandemic has accelerated the move to online shopping. Overall, how has it affected you? There's clearly COVID, which, you know, as you say, has been the most unbelievable of experiences. So there's that. But I think prior to that, honestly, we, we had the threat, if you like, to bricks and mortar retail of the internet. You know, that, that really has turned physical retail upside down. And so there was already quite a damaged bricks and mortar landscape. And I think really what COVID has done is it sort of accelerated that impact. The fact is that people more and more are shopping digitally. And, and in many ways, it's absolutely brilliant. And yet what it means, I think, is that you probably need less bricks and mortar, is the truth. And what you have, therefore, needs to give a reason to visit because the fact is it's much easier to go click and not have to schlep to the store. So it needs to be about experience. It needs to, to offer something different. It needs to, to perhaps offer a service that you can't get online. So that's been very much our focus actually prior to COVID. In fact, we actually actively were closing stores because we felt a network of sort of 65 stores globally was perhaps not so modern anymore. And we've opened what we call our little village, this little group of stores, a little cafe around our very first store, really using that as a platform for all the things we care about. And, and it feels like a magnet for me personally, that where the entire backdrop of my career has been to the word global or globalisation, I actually think the next 10 years are going to be about local and localization. Let's talk about how you built and sustained an eponymous brand for over three decades now. You started in business very young, really as a teenager in 1980s Britain. In that period, it was still the, the Thatcher era then, there was a, a sense of entrepreneurialism in the air. Was that one of the things that sparked what you wanted to do? Yes, I think it was. I started my business when I was 18. I mean, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So therefore, the sort of the backdrop was quite normal for me, if you like. But it was it was that Thatcher's Britain. There was a sort of momentum towards starting businesses and cutting red tape to make it easy to start businesses. And I think it's amazing when you get a momentum, how 
it, it can start so many businesses. I mean, around me, I was watching Carf and Warehouse and Pret-a-Manger and Next and a sock shop that was that moment of, if they can do it, I can do it. We need another momentum like that, actually, to really um, drive us out of this, this glum period we're going to be suffering, I think, post-pandemic. That meant that in your mid-20s, you were already operating a shop in Knightsbridge, in the very swanky area of London. The business really began to boom. We had a lot of questions and, and responses on this show when we have entrepreneurs on as guests, and particularly female entrepreneurs. And one question is often, how did they deal with responsibility so young, uh, then segueing, of course, into family life. And, and you have a, a number of, uh, of children with your partner uh, as well. At what point was it hardest? Well, I think probably mixing a growing business when you can't dial nine for IT support. And so you didn't have the, the sort of infrastructure around you. Whilst having a young family is, is probably the toughest. I always talk about the sort of two-year period I call the tunnel you go into it and it's a it's a pretty brutal time uh, and you sort of kind of get through it really and the other is I think that for my generation I'm, I'm 53 now I think there was a sort of transition generation where we have the sort of the memory of uh, the roles our mothers played and traditionally my parents my father was you know the worker my mother was more of the homemaker but so I'm working as hard if you like as my father worked and yet I'm still trying to play up to the role that my mother played as well and that that's hard and I think that's actually changing for this next generation you juggle motherhood with running a successful brand. You have an active social life. You do a lot of charity work too. Do you ever stop yourself and think, I'm taking on too much? <laughs> I think a lot of women take on too much. But you know what? I remember once going for an acupuncturist appointment and saying, oh, I've got this and that. And he's like, you chose all of that. You chose every single one of those things. And it was very sobering. Uh, and the fact is, I love taking on too much. I love I love that sense. And also, I'm lucky in the sense that I share my husband and I work together. Uh, he's an amazing cook. I don't cook. We've already moved away from that transition generation problem that I referred to. So we, we divide it very much between the two of us. I don't suppose the cooking husband could be rented out in a sort of, possibly over the next week or so. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure. Listen, <laughs> he, trust me, he'd be thrilled. We're all into the sharing economy now. Maybe Anya's husband could pop round. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Might work for all of us. <laughs> He's not going to want to hear this, is he? <laughs> By the noughties, you were scaling up your business at a rapid scale. Everywhere I went in the world, it seemed to be, it was an Anya Heimarsh store popping up. You sold a stake to Qatari investors in around 2012 and stepped down as CEO, focusing on the creative side. But the brand did have financial difficulties. There were heavy reported pre-tax losses in 2017 and a number of shops then closed. Just tell me a bit about the, the big picture. What was going on there and how did you decide that you wanted to handle it? Well, it's it's interesting. I think for any founder, often you feel that you need to bring in perhaps professional people to run the business. Um, certainly I was CEO and I was creative and they're quite big roles. And I had five children. I felt that it was probably time for me to split my role and either to bring in a CEO or to bring in a creative. And I decided to bring in a CEO over a creative because it was probably easier to recruit in, in a strange way. And we had, you know, lots of great um, successes and did some very interesting things. I think, though, my learning is that actually often with founders, you feel you need to bring in the professionals, but perhaps the better solution is to keep the founder running the business, but to actually promote underneath can be quite disruptive actually bringing in people from the outside to the kind of ecosystem of the culture, if that makes sense. So I actually, um, with a partner, bought back the business in uh, 2019 and went and returned to both roles of leading the business, both creatively and in terms of running the business. And I actually really sort of just brought my team underneath me and promoted them. And that feels like the, the right route for, for me. 
I suppose I've certainly learned that I I know more than I think, but you often actually just need to kind of get a great team underneath you so you can um, you can spread the load. And you optimistic now, given that retail around the world has obviously got uh, challenges and those who want to hang on to that strong personal involvement that you described that drove you back to the fuller role in the company a couple of years ago. Do you feel there are better times ahead? Well, yeah, I'm actually very optimistic. I mean, it was, you know, it was a big decision to buy the business back, really. But I think it's a very different world. It's a digital world. It's a direct consumer world. I think that what is exciting is the idea that you build this community. You know, we talk to us of a million people every time we we post something, whether it's through Instagram or Facebook or all the various different channels. And actually, you build a very good and direct relationship with your customers. And it's very telling. And in some ways, I think the big shift in this world, and certainly in terms of fashion, is that there have always been middlemen, if you like. There's been the department stores and there's been the press. And to a certain extent, whilst those roles are still very, very important for us, actually, we are talking much more directly to our customer. And that is very, very interesting and very telling and and in many ways much safer because you can really react and listen and have that relationship. So um, the world is a different place. But I think that if you are prepared to make some quite dramatic changes, and as I said before, for us, it was not about having a, a store in every city around the world anymore. It was about actually having a very engaged community and actually really making sure that our retail had a reason. Actually, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Yes, people still want beautiful things. It's the holiday season. It's time for high shine and sparkles. It's something you've done in a very witty way. You've made handbags that resemble cereal boxes and Heinz baked bean tins. It seems to me that a sense of humour runs through what you design. Is that the secret to good style as we hit the high street or the internet for the last shopping days of the year? Well, I think we all deserve a bit of a smile, don't we? And I think we all deserve this year to have something that's going to make us smile, whatever that is. You know, this Christmas, <laughs> I think everyone just needs a break and they need to be with their family. So please, God, that happens. Um, and if there's something under the tree that makes people smile, then that, that's that's good news, I think. Favourite bag under your arm at the moment? Oh, hard one. This Return to Nature project we're doing is, is I'm passionate about, actually, which is all about a bag that could biodegrade and compost in the way that there is no waste in nature. Could we make uh, something in fashion that like an apple that falls and biodegrades and promotes lovely healthy soil? Could we make a bag that does the same? And two years of work and it's out. And I love it, actually. And that's sitting next to me right here because I know it's doing no harm and it's a beautiful thing. Anja Heinmarch, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And thank you so much. And we'd love to hear from you. Has your wardrobe turned the colour of the season green? Have you built a capsule collection to last a lifetime? I'm buying fewer throwaway items, but that's had the effect of making my shopping so much more expensive. Hmm. But if you've cracked the formula, do write to us podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. For more style notes, head over to our website where we've investigated how fashion has turned into an asset class. It's a Christmas cracker of a read. And you know what I'm about to say. Do give yourselves the treat of an Economist subscription today. For your best introductory offer, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My inexhaustibly stylish producers were Alicia Burrell and Julia Johnson and the executive producer was Hannah Mourinho. We all wish you a very happy holiday season. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... Ugh, the joys of driving. 
How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.